Hi, Connectors. Welcome to another episode of Connected to the Podcast. On this episode, connect with Earl McCoy. He is a candidate in the upcoming election for Tippecanoe County Prosecutor. Also, consider donating to Tory. That's the Texas Offender Reentry Initiative. All right, no more talking from me because I want you to sit back, relax, do what you do, whatever you do while listening to a podcast. And let's get connected. today did you have any hearings uh you know my days go so fast these days it's really kind of crazy um i just came from delphi we're at a family law hearing it was scheduled for hearing but we ended up working it out by agreement in mm-hmm. a conference room so that's always nice we just had to deal with who was going to pay what bills so we were able to get that done by agreement but you know it it took an hour and a half, almost two hours of the attorneys going back and forth with the clients in different rooms trying wow. to get it resolved, but we were able to get it resolved. So busy day. Normal for me. But normal. <laughs> yeah. I'm usually booked every half hour all day long, whether it's appointments, court, another appointment, court. I mean. Well then, I'm glad we could connect and chat. I am here in the office of Earl McCoy. He is also running for prosecutor. Um, he is currently practicing under his own gracious name, McCoy Law. Yes. And he is a family and criminal attorney born and raised here in Tippecanoe County? Not quite. I no? was born in California. Okay. And my dad had the type of job where I would transfer, he transferred a lot. Every six months, usually. There was one time I lived in a Holiday Inn for six months, which oh. I thought was awesome. I lived in a hotel, too, and I know about that life. That's pretty cool. It's not <laughs> bad. It's not bad. You so, got a swimming pool, fresh That's towels. right. It was, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, amenities that I don't have at my current home, <laughs> right. so I don't get room service currently. Mm-hmm. So it, it had its advantages, no doubt. Um, so and t- from kindergarten on, I usually went to two schools a year. I, wow. I didn't go to the same grade school. I never went to the same grade school more than a year until I landed in Lafayette in fifth grade. <clears throat> okay. What was then Crouch Elementary, they've closed it down. It's no longer an elementary school, but I went to Crouch Elementary and then Sunnyside Junior High when it was grade seven, eight, and nine. I went to Lafayette Jefferson High School as a sophomore and junior. And then even though my parents didn't move very far, just cross tracks, it's a different school district, and so I graduated from McCutcheon. I attended McCutcheon High School as a senior. Okay. Graduated in 1987. All right, so you kind of grew up in California. You said you you. I was born around. in California, and we lived, actually I think my parents moved out of the LA area when I was about six months old, so I have no real memories of living in California. Okay. Um, my early memories start in Nebraska. We worked, we lived in Omaha, Nebraska for a while, Lincoln, Nebraska for a while, ended up moving back to Indiana. My, my father is from Indiana. Okay. My mother is from Omaha, Nebraska. All right. And so we lived in Vincennes and Lebanon and Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, until we landed in Lafayette. All right. So you're still an Indiana guy. I am definitely a Hoosier. All right. So tell me this. Who makes the best tenderloin sandwich? Uh, You know, surprisingly, I am not a tenderloin fan. I'm more of a beef guy. But I will say that I think the best tenderloin in town is a B&N diner. Okay, I have never been there. Oh, please go. Where please is it? Be an in diner is on 50 State Sagamore Parkway. I don't know that it's 52 anymore. I think they changed that down Teal Road, but it's uh, right across from the mall on ah, on 52. Okay. Near Teal Road. I'm kind of familiar. And this is like my area downtown. Yeah. Like, okay. And so you, Indiana guy, who's your guy? Um, you went to both Purdue. And IU. That's correct. My undergrad degree is from Purdue University. I, I graduated in, well, my major was business management from the oh, yeah? Cranert School of Business. Huh. 
And then when I graduated, I actually um, graduated midterm, so I graduated in December of 1992. Mm -hmm. I planned on probably attending law school in August, but um, wasn't 100% sure at that point exactly what I was going to do. So uh, I interviewed, I had four job offers when I left Purdue, but I ended up choosing Walmart, and I became okay. an assistant store manager for Walmart, mostly because they had it wasn't the highest paying job offer actually, but it seemed like the best opportunity because they planned, at that time Walmart was expanding on the East Coast and the West Coast. And so they had promised me that they would train me in a large city and as soon as I completed their training program, I would move to either the East Coast or the West Coast. And oh. I thought that sounded fantastic. Yeah. So the big city I started in was Indianapolis. Okay. <laughs> Not very far down the road, but right. that's where they put me and I worked in completed in the Greenwood store on the south side of Indianapolis and completed my training a little bit ahead of schedule and I thought I was going to New Hampshire but I ended up moving me to the East Washington Street store on the east side of Indianapolis and I worked there as a store assistant store manager until I decided to go to law school and I went I attended law school at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis okay uh, March Madness just ended and it's all about basketball. Indeed. Indy, IU has the best basketball team? This year? I'm asking you your personal opinion. Uh, definitely not this year. Purdue, unfortunately, with some injuries, they didn't uh, go as far in the tournament as I was hoping they would go. Mm -hmm. But at least they made the tournament. Right. IU basketball didn't even make the tournament. So. Yeah. Uh, Boiler up, hammer down. That's right. Um, Okay, you said business management. What inspired business management, your interest? Well, I did envision someday opening my own business, whether that was a law practice or some other type of a practice. And I do, in fact, own this business mm -hmm. um, and another small business. Uh, generally, I just wanted to go into the field of business because I thought it was a good, well-rounded education that would apply to a lot of different fields in the event that I decided I didn't like law school or I didn't want mm. to be a trial attorney. You know, I didn't know any trial attorneys. I'm the first person in my family to graduate oh, from wow. college, let alone get an advanced degree like a, a Juris Doctor degree. Huh. Um, we didn't have any family friends that were attorneys. I guess I envisioned what it would be like to be an attorney by watching Perry Mason yeah. and Matlock, and, and I wanted, you know, in Law and Order, and I wanted mm -hmm. to be a trial attorney in the courtroom handling jury trials. I thought I would like it, and so I followed that dream, and it turns out I absolutely love being in the courtroom. I prefer to be in the courtroom in front of juries, which is, mm -hmm. you know, the only way we, well, I don't do a lot of personal injury practice, so the only way I really end up in front of a jury is through criminal defense cases or if I win this campaign for prosecutor, that'll give me a lot more opportunity to be in front of juries. Okay, and I had to write this down because I don't want to, you know, misspeak. But you were listed as the 2017 10 Best Attorney Client Satisfaction, and this is from the American Institute of Family Law Attorneys. Your what led you to practicing? What's your passion? Where does your passion come from? To be named. 2017 10 best attorney client satisfaction that's pretty amazing that was definitely quite an honor when I was notified and all right I hope they're okay yeah it, it was certainly quite an honor to receive that um, it came as quite a shock to me I didn't mm -hmm. expect it didn't know about it um, didn't ask for it I, I thought it was a great thing. My passion does come from being in the courtroom. I mean, that's that's what I enjoy doing more than anything. I love being in the courtroom and advocating and fighting to, for truth and justice. And people don't realize that you do that as a defense attorney. You know, I'm just there as a defense attorney to try to ensure the process is performed, all the processes are performed in the right way. Mm -hmm. To ensure nobody's rights are violated and everybody gets a fair trial. And if we all have fair trials, you know, it should lead to a right and just resolution in the end. Mm -hmm. On the family law side, I, I didn't really envision myself being a family law attorney 
at least not doing as much family law as I do. When I was in law school, family law was an elective. It was not a required mm -hmm. course. I did take family law because I thought, you know, that's probably an area where there is a lot of need in our community, and it certainly is true. There is a lot of need for family law attorneys mm -hmm. in this area. Um, Why do you think that is? You know, things are changing. Times are changing. You know, when I was growing up, oh, the saying used to be that, you know, you had to get married if somebody got pregnant. That's mm -hmm. actually not true anymore. Now we do a lot of paternity cases. If somebody actually gets pregnant accidentally today, it seems like more often they say, well, no, we're not going to get married until after the baby's here because I don't want anybody to think I got married because I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. So, But we have uh, a large number of divorces, people... It's easier for people to cheat today. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, technology has not helped interpersonal relationships in any way, shape, or form. You know, people reach out, there's no boundaries anymore, like I said, with Facebook, social media, and texting and sexting. And the things that are going on today in the world are much different than when I was growing up. You know, when I was growing up, if you wanted to ask a girl out, you had to have <laughs> some skin in the game and go up and ask her. You might be able to pass her a note, but you, right. you know, you had to walk up and approach her and she might shoot you down and say no, and then you had to walk away in shame, and that was just how it went. But that's not true anymore. Now, They'll send a text, and if somebody shoots them down, they're just like, ah, oh, sorry, somebody else hacked my phone, or mm -hmm. Joey had my phone, and they don't even accept responsibility. It's no, there's not face-to-face -face contact. And so because of that and because of the high ability for people to be able to communicate with other people who are in a relationship secretly now, mm -hmm. I mean, when I was growing up, nobody had cell phones. So if you wanted to call somebody, you'd call the house. The phone yeah. rings, somebody else might answer. And then it's like, uh, who's this? Or right. who is it you're talking to? But now, technology being the way it is, a husband and wife can be sitting on opposite ends of the couch, and the husband thinks the wife's paying solitaire, but she's really communicating with somebody about inappropriate things. And <laughs> and that's led to a lot more uh, you know, relationships that just don't seem to last as long as they used to. Mm. Because there are a lot of people that don't seem to take the oath of marriage as seriously as it used to be taken. Gotcha. And there we have more family law cases. <laughs> yes, indeed. We end up with more family law cases. So not only have you seen or have been seen in court with family law cases here in the at the trial court level, you've also been in front of the Indiana Court of Appeals and Supreme Court. That is true. That's an honor, because not too many people can say they've done that. I, I guess it started when the firm I started with, I joined the first law firm I joined as an attorney. I was here in Lafayette, and it was a firm by the name of Holder, Davis, and Smith at that time, and it was uh, Carolyn Sue Holder, Cynthia Smith, and Ann Davis. And those attorneys were very active in family law, uh, not a lot of criminal defense, but they did do a ton of family law, and they also had a very active appellate practice. Mm -hmm. So initially, um, they did encourage me to get into appellate practice, and I jumped in wholeheartedly. It's, in my experience after that, that I think that practicing, you know, doing appeals or appellate work is one way to help make sure you stay sharp. You mm -hmm. can't write an appellate brief without doing your legal research and making sure you know everything about the law in that area frontwards and backwards because you're filing it with, honestly, the legal authorities in Indiana. The Supreme Court and the Indiana Court of Appeals help shape the law. They mm -hmm. decide what the statutes mean and they interpret, uh, they interpret the law and they create new case law that we have to follow. So uh, you can't snow those fellows or mm -hmm. those people, you know, those people are, they, they know the law and if you're going to write an effective appellate brief, you have to make sure you know the law. It, it was very exciting when I was sure. when I was called and asked to come give an oral argument, mm -hmm. and and we did that in the Supreme Indiana Supreme Court courtroom, and it was interesting because the, they sent me an email and said, "Hey, we want you here on this day," and I'm like, "Holy smokes! I got to go!" You know, I'd written the brief months ahead of time, and then mm -hmm. I had to go back and refresh myself right. on everything. And, tight. <laughs> yeah, and, and to add the pressure, add to the pressure, they said, oh, by the way, when you're here, 
It's going to be in front of about 100 college students from all across the state of Indiana. Oh, and wow. And it's going to be, you know, televised from oh, the Supreme no Court pressure. courtroom out into the rotunda and the main areas of the Indiana State House. And, oh, by the way, it's going to be live streamed on the Internet to anybody that wants to watch it worldwide. So, yeah, there was a lot of pressure there. To, <laughs> to get your uh, makeup done. <laughs> yeah, you would think. But uh, I remember walking in and, and sitting down because I hadn't done an oral argument since court in mm -hmm. law school, is, you know, which isn't even real, but right. you, know, you practice it. But I, I just had never done one. I've I'd done tons of appeals, and they never bothered to ask for me to come and appear personally in front of them. And so when they did, uh, and I arrived, I was amazed at just how much I was sweating. I was sweating bullets. Yeah. I was just as nervous <laughs> as you get. And as soon as I got up there and started talking, mm -hmm. I introduced myself and said, may it please court, whatever, and I'm about to start. And one of the justices said to me, don't worry about the time, because I, I probably was watching the clock nonstop, because you have to reserve a certain number of minutes for rebuttal, and the clock's there. And, and she said, don't worry about the clock. Go into a little extra detail on the factual history so that the students understand what the case is about. Okay. And then Very I was relaxed. like, yeah. fine. Yeah. And I just rolled after that, and I Good. never once looked at the clock. Of course, I went over on my time. Mm -hmm. So one of the justices said, he got kind of mean with me and said, you didn't answer that question directly. What's the answer, yes or no? And I said, no. And he said, your time's done. <laughs> okay, I'll sit down. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but it was a very interesting argument. Um, that case was, a, a, the case I'm talking about was a criminal case. I did not do the criminal jury trial, but I got appointed to represent the individual on appeal. Okay. It was a uh, failure to register as a sex offender case with a, and it was he was a habitual offender and he had failed to register three times before, so it mm -hmm. elevated the charge and he was sitting in prison and and uh, I was able to, not that's necessarily a good thing, but I did win the appeal. His conviction was set aside. It was ordered back to the trial court for a new trial. Oh, wow. Um, when it got back to the trial court, the prosecutor in charge of the case at that time and myself were able to agree to time served, and he ended up just pleading guilty again, mm -hmm. but no new sentencing. He got time served and released. And this is for the connectors out there, this is a failure to register as a sex offender, not that this sex offender should, who was just convicted of a sex crime, is now back out. This is just fail, failing to register as a sex offender. Right. Okay. He had already been convicted of a sex offense. He had been put on the registry. He had been convicted of failure to register in other jurisdictions before. And then he came to Tippecanoe County. Um, he was actually homeless, living in a tent thing down on the river. Mm -hmm. And um, but he had failed to register. Even homeless people have to register once a week. And he mm -hmm. failed to register as a sex offender to let authorities know, hey, this individual's in this community, and this is where he's staying. Um, and so they convicted him for failure to register as a sex offender. But there was no new sex offense tied to the case. Okay. Well, I I see. Yes. You, client satisfaction, I, I understand. <laughs> and what, it's been 22 years, yes. and thousands of clients later, you're now running for a Tippecanoe County prosecutor. Yes, I am. Um, I've been doing some research. I noticed. Uh, <laughs> and I saw that you previously worked with Pat Harrington, the current prosecutor, who you're running against now. That is true. All right. So you know um, Mr. Harrington in a different way, in a work colleague way. What is one good thing about working with him? Or what good attribute you can say about Mr. Harrington's work ethic? Well, one, one great benefit to me from working for Mr. Harrington. I, I didn't really work with him. I was not partners with him. I was his employee for five years. When I, I said I started at Holder, Davis, and Smith, and that firm was heavily family law. 
I enjoy family law and I still practice family law today, but that was not my passion. My passion was criminal defense mm -hmm. or criminal prosecution, but I wanted to be in the courtroom in front of juries. When I met with Mr. Harrington, he promised me that he would be able to get me courtroom work in front of juries. And I said, fantastic, if you can do that, then you know I'll come work for you. So I went to work for him. I did not realize at the time how he was gonna accomplish that, but what he did was he obtained, and they did things differently back then, but he obtained a public defender contract where he had the contract, but he didn't do the work I did. So I showed up and handled all the public defender cases that were assigned to our office. I see. At that time, we didn't have any case limits, and so I had a very large caseload, but, but it was a great opportunity for me because as a public defender, I was able to um, handle a great, you know, large number of jury trials and learn how to try cases. I started out handling cases in Superior Court 5 at that time, which was public intoxicants, theft, domestic batteries, had a number of jury trials there. In a very short period of time, um, they essentially promoted me and moved my caseload to Tippecanoe Superior Court 2. And you're familiar with the criminal caseload in Tippecanoe Superior Court 2. It's much yeah. like Superior 1. But back in those days, I was the only public defender in Tippecanoe Superior Court 2. So every oh, wow. public defender case in that court was oh, mine. That's wow. a huge caseload. Yes. So, uh, and then on top of that, I ended up getting assigned the biggest murder case that had come along or has come along since my career in the last 22 years. And that was when an attorney by the name of John Bars was kidnapped. He was an attorney from Fowler, Benton County, Fowler, Indiana, came here, was kidnapped. And then many months later, I think eight or nine months later, his body was found in West Lafayette. People were, well, an individual was making repeated ransom demands and they had set up these huge ransom drops. And what, so what made it the biggest case was the sheer amount of time it took to even find the suspect. Mm -hmm. It took uh, nine months, 10 months to a year, somewhere in that range to even identify wow. the suspect. And the sheer number of law enforcement officers that were involved uh, was just staggering. I mean, there were literally law enforcement officers involved with that investigation from every department you can think of. We had officers from all of our local departments, Lafayette, West Lafayette, Purdue, Tippecanoe County Sheriff's Department, but we also had FBI, ATF, we had um, natural resource officers. We had everybody under the sun coming in in all kinds of plain clothes because they would set up, one of the ransom drops, for example, was at the Taco Bell on near 52 in West Lafayette in Salisbury. So it's a heavily, you know, very busy intersection, busy area. There's a Taco Bell there, and the ransom drop was supposed to happen, but there were literally 100 police officers in and around that area in plain clothes and different vehicles and trying to monitor every vehicle that came in and out. Mm -hmm. In that particular case, the defendant didn't show up that day, so then there was another ransom drop that was supposed to take place at Horticulture Park, Purdue's campus. And again, that's a wide open area mm -hmm. with you know a, a lot of wide open spaces. So the sheer number of police officers that were put in plain clothes and out and writing reports. I mean, it was literally the trial of the decade at the time it happened, and I don't think there's been a bigger trial since. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But that was on top of the other heavy cases that you know the heavy caseload I had mm -hmm. in Superior Two. So the best thing that working for Pat Harrington did for me was provide me the opportunity to become a public defender and uh, gain a great deal of jury trial experience in, yeah. in that process. Huh, well I'm sure your clients thank him <laughs> for that. Wow, um, that's, I, I can't even think of the right word to say. Um, that would give me a lot of experience. That one case there is full of experience, full of growth as an attorney. Um, would you say that case in and of itself gave you the most experience, or is there a case that gave you the most, the most growth as an attorney? That probably was, uh, yeah, absolutely. It was the biggest case of my career thus far in terms of you know, evidence management, witness management, and just prioritizing and preparing for a case. I, there's, 
really, it's hard to imagine a trial that could possibly be any bigger or more difficult to prepare than that trial. So that was probably the best case for me to, in terms of professional growth. But a lot of different cases um, have have had interesting aspects to them. Um, you know, child pornography has been a crime a long time now, but early on when I was a public defender, I had the first child pornography case really locally. And it was a, a Purdue student who, you know, this was back in the days of dial-up and AOL and mm, all the beeps and buzzes, yeah. and it took forever to download anything. And um, But he had, you know, come from a home where he had dial-up internet to Purdue's campus where they had a T1 line or something, so it was really high-speed internet. Mm -hmm. And he was using a service provider, kind of like Napster, but a little different. And this was back in the day of Napster where it would download these files and, and child porn was found on his computer. And there was some that was clearly child porn, but not, not really little kids, you know? So um, when they found the images, they found tons of images on his computer, but the way they did it back then, they do it differently now. A deputy prosecutor and a female deputy prosecutor and a female police officer from Purdue sat down and looked at these pictures and decided what they thought was or was not child porn. Mm. and charged him based on that. Then they later, and I'm thinking, well, how can you say that's child porn? I can't tell how old that person is, mm -hmm. you know? And, I mean, we're not talking little kids. We're, you know, so how do you, how do you decide? So they ended up having a, taken a doctor's deposition because the doctor said, well, this is child porn. And so I took the doctor's deposition, deposition and said, well, how do you decide what is or is mm -hmm. not child porn? Well, she was using a tool that said if you know a child's age and you look for these development stages, you know, hair growth, the size of the breast, certain little things that, that you know, it tells you if they're on target if you know their age. Mm -hmm. Well, she was flipping that on its head and saying, well, if this is what you see, then they're probably this age, which was not what the tool was ever intended to be. And so once I realized exactly how she was deciding what was or was not child porn, um, I came back here, I went to a local newsstand that used to sell certain magazines and I bought some magazines that were legally purchased at a local newsstand and they were magazines that you know people could buy readily. And I used my scanner and I took out some pictures and put them on a CD and we went back down and took that same doctor's deposition again. And I said, well, tell me about these pictures now, or are these child porn? And she said the same number of those were child porn as well. Hmm. So then I got back and took photocopies of the covers of the magazine, sent them over to the prosecutor's office and said, you better go over and arrest mm -hmm. the owner of the newsstand over here because he's selling child porn according to your expert. Obviously it wasn't child porn, but in that case it was very there was a very big learning curve because we were all kind of doing it for the for the first time. The mm -hmm. law had just been added, and I mean there was some federal law, but Indiana's law was new. It was Tippecanoe County's first case, and mm -hmm. they didn't really know how to do it. And I had to kind of teach them to a certain extent what was and was not acceptable. We did end up with a good resolution, and and that client was not, you know, every criminal client's a little different. His story wasn't that he, I mean, it wasn't that he liked little children. He didn't. But he was just 18 himself, and he was looking at photographs and such of, of what he said was, you know, I'm looking for somebody that I would have a shot with. Mm. I wouldn't have a shot with a Playboy bunny. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not what I would have a shot with. But this girl next door looks like somebody that, you know, you know might be able to get to say yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So that's, what, that's why he focused on that type of crime, and I've never heard from him again, to my knowledge, and never got into any more criminal trouble. Well, to me that says a lot, meaning he didn't have a criminal intent then, which, as you know, some people got off, jury trial let them off, well, not jury trial, the jury find them not guilty, then two weeks later, oh, look who's in our jail. Right. That's so frustrating. Huh. It's incredibly frustrating. So through your attorney life and career, you've been making changes um, for the county. As a prosecutor, what changes will you implement? The first thing I will do is start ch filing charges faster 
and filing charges in more of these cases. Currently, right now, Harrington is failing to file charges on thousands of cases. And then there are cases where he does file them, but he's not filing them until a year, two years, two and a half years later. I don't know if you picked up a copy of my book of facts out there, but one of the cases, for example, just really infuriates me. And it infuriates me because of the family law connection I have to the case. Mm -hmm. But an individual on, well, the Tippecanoe County High Tech Crime Unit, which does produce good, strong evidence. I don't have any problems with that. The problem is with the bottleneck at the prosecutor's office. But the High Tech Crime Unit gets notified that, hey, through a social media site, we've tracked some child porn to this particular guy's computer and address. So they obtain a search warrant and go and obtain this individual's computer, iPhone, and a jump drive that was on his keychain. They pull him in and question him, and he confesses. He confesses to setting up the social media account with a fake name. He confesses to downloading the child porn. In fact, the police didn't even know it was on the key drive. They, mm. He says, yes, it's going to be on my computer and on my phone. Oh, and by the way, you'll also find it on that jump drive that's on my keychain. Wow. My concern is they didn't arrest him. He confessed, they had the devices that had the child porn on them, they knew it was there, and they did not arrest him. Mm -hmm. This was, well, it was July 29th and July 30th of 2015. The prosecutor's office took those devices and didn't bother to look at them until May 27th, 2017, mm -hmm. two months short of two years later. Mm -hmm. Then once they looked at him, they said, yep, this is child porn, this is when he downloaded it, this is where it came from, high-tech crime unit, and nailed it all down. They still didn't bother to file charges until January 5th, 2018. And so that means he's just out free? He had never even been arrested, he was still on the street. It, it hits close home mm -hmm. to me because his ex-wife, when she found out a search warrant was executed for child porn, is what she was told, mm -hmm. she came and hired me. We filed a petition to terminate his visitation with his three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Mm. I mean, if he's so into child porn that he's carrying it around with him on a keychain, mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable sending a three-and-a-half-year-old little girl to go visit with him. Mm -hmm. The problem is when we went to court, I didn't have any of that evidence because the prosecutor's office had gathered that evidence and kept it secret in their office. So I had no access to it. All I could do was call the sheriff's deputy to come testify. But when a prosecutor's office has an open investigation, there's very little information I'm allowed to give or oh, get. Wow. The judge would not allow me to ask certain questions because it could compromise their investigation. So for months, I was calling the prosecutor's office saying, hey, file the charges on this case. I need the charges filed on this case. Finally, they got very snippy with me and said, look, Earl, we're not going to decide how to do our job based on your family law case. And I said, look, it's not about a family law case. It's about protecting this little girl. Mm -hmm. In any event, they never filed the charges until two and a half years later. Honestly, by then, I'd forgotten about it. I did go to court mm -hmm. with the mother and fought and fought and fought and was able to get supervised visitation. But the judge gave me the hardest time because he said, look, Earl, he hasn't even been arrested. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been a finding of probable cause, let alone proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and you want me to limit his parenting time. And I said, you're right, Judge, I do, because it's about protecting this child. She can't even communicate with us right. effectively right now, and we need to err on the side of caution because it matters. This child cannot be at risk. Mm -hmm. Well, the judge ended up saying, you know what, Earl, fine. I'll give you supervised visits, but the supervisors or his current wife, who didn't believe he did anything wrong because he hadn't been arrested, mm -hmm. and his mother, who didn't believe he did anything wrong because he hadn't been arrested. Mm. If they don't believe he's a risk, they're not gonna really supervise. Right. So this child had to go visit with this man until for two and a half years until the charges were finally filed this January, and I found out, and then I filed again and cut off visitation. Mm -hmm. but that child's now six by the time they filed charges. That's completely unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And when I'm prosecutor, if somebody comes in and confesses and you found it on the hard drive, mm -hmm. an arrest needs to be made that day. Mm -hmm. And once an arrest is made that day, we have 48 hours to file charges. If we need a little extra time to file charges, we can ask for a 72-hour extension. But those charges need to be filed within five days of that arrest, and that arrest needs to happen as soon as he confesses. Mm -hmm. Letting it sit on a shelf for two and a half years is not acceptable to me. I agree. And 
filing charges or not filing charges in this case, and filing charges um, repeatedly, or I should say over-policing so that there are a lot of charges being filed against our citizens. How do you intend to increase or maintain trust between the prosecutor's office and the local community? Well, I think part of the problem that, I mean, the, a big part of the problem the community has with the prosecutor's office right now is they know there are thousands of cases that aren't being filed. And they may not have realized it until I actually requested the numbers from LPD, West Lafayette, and the Sheriff's Department, and I made the numbers public. But mm -hmm. people know because the victims are out there, and they know, you know, this happened to me and nobody ever got charged. Mm -hmm. Or they know, hey, I got away with this, I never got charged. Or they know somebody in their family got arrested and didn't get charged. Or somebody in their family was a victim and the people were identified and never got charged. I mean, mm -hmm. the community is aware of this because this affects the community. And when you're talking about thousands of cases each year, mm -hmm. there are thousands of victims each year that are not getting justice and they know. So once charges are filed on a regular basis and, and our community has faith mm -hmm. again in the prosecutor's office and in the police department, the bad news is a lot of the people in our community are frustrated with the police because they believe it's the police that didn't do their job. Mm -hmm. They don't understand the system. They don't realize the police officer did his job or her job, did the report, sent it to the prosecutor's office, and that's where it died. That's where it fell in between the cracks. Mm -hmm. They don't know that, so they tend to blame the police. That is a, is a concern, but by filing all these, not every case, you know, I, don't, I can't say I'm going to file every case. If it's a good, legitimate charge, I'm going to file it. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked, you mentioned earlier, there's a particular individual that was acquitted of murder and seems to be thumbing his nose at our community. He's been arrested multiple times in our county and other counties. And I, I think back to that newspaper report most recently when it pointed out that he was arrested on a new drug offense and he had a handgun on him, a loaded handgun. He's not licensed to carry a handgun, so that's another crime. And they pointed out that he had two prior arrests in Tippecanoe County for possession of marijuana, and he was charged in one of them. Hmm. Why did he get a free pass on the other one? Mm -hmm. He doesn't deserve a free pass. Those charges need to be filed. We need to file those cases and I'm not saying that each and every one of them needs ton of j tons of jail time, but we need to file the cases, impose jail time when it's appropriate, which is really a judge determination, not a prosecutor determination, mm -hmm. provide probation, provide treatment, give people an opportunity to turn their lives around and live correctly. But they, there has to be consequences for criminal behavior. And mm -hmm. all right now, we're just having too many cases where there's not any consequences. I agree. And that includes um, trust and transparency with including um, immigrants here, because we have a big population of immigrants. Yes, we do. And considering um, the president's current stance on DACA, I know that there is a concern about um, being deported or being picked up just randomly, and I'm wondering if the prosecutors, if the prosecutor office or the prosecutor himself can help with that, um, with the police, I'm, I'm saying, because I know the prosecutor's office have relationship with the police department, but like maintain or increase transparency and trust between the office, including immigrants. Well, you know, I certainly want to keep the office as transparent as possible. I mean, there are certain things we're not allowed to discuss, but everything that can be disseminated to the public, I want that information available to the public. I also will be much more accessible to the public than our mm -hmm. current prosecutor. I've had numerous people complain that, you know, I asked for an appointment with Mr. Harrington and I was told that I can't meet with Mr. Harrington. Mm -hmm. I've had difficulty trying to talk to him because I'm made to feel like whatever issue I have can't be important enough to justify taking up any of his time. Mm -hmm. That's not the way I see the job. The way I see the job is I will be a servant to this community and I should be available and accessible to the community. And if somebody wants to schedule an appointment to meet with me and they're willing to call the office, schedule a time that works on my calendar and take time out of their day to come down and meet with me, then they are going to have the opportunity to meet with me. Mm -hmm. 
that's my duty in my opinion. So there will be transparency there. When it comes to a lot of the immigration, you know, as a prosecutor, I can only enforce the criminal laws of the state of Indiana. I have no control over federal immigration laws, federal processes, or federal laws. I can work together with federal authorities to try to exchange information, but I can't prosecute anybody in a federal situation. One of the frustrations we've had, back when I was a public defender years ago, I had an individual who was arrested, who was illegal. He was arrested for selling drugs. And they had put an ice hold on him, a detention, you know, because he was supposed to be deported. And so I argued at sentencing, Judge, there's no sentence and there's no sense in keeping him here in our prison where we have to, you know, pay for him and take care of him. So why don't we just do, you know, time served, he's got an ice hold on him, so he'll be deported and then they can send him back to his home country. And the judge agreed and said, you know what, fine, let's just do time served, flip him over to the federal authorities and let them deal with him. The problem is the federal authorities have to honor the due process requirements over there. Mm -hmm. So our jail releases him to the federal authorities. They take him over, basically give him a court date and turn him loose. And his court date is many months down the road. So he got a much lighter sentence than he was supposed to have gotten right. because we thought he was going to be deported only to find out they turned him loose, gave him a hearing date oh. down the road. He came right back to our community and started selling drugs again. Wow. Ended up being charged again and filed in the same court. So that time the judge sentenced him to a lengthy prison sentence because you know, we can't count on the federal authorities to always follow through and actually deport the individual. So it's a it's a difficult problem. I don't know that I can, I mean, I can only do what I can do from a prosecutor's stance. And when it comes to sentencing, you have to remember the sentence that's imposed is up to the judge. Mm -hmm. A prosecutor can argue for what we believe is appropriate. The defense is allowed to argue for what they agree or believe is appropriate. And the judge has to make the decision about what is or is not appropriate. Mm -hmm. All right, well, it sounds like you are pretty pumped up about this campaign, even possibly one day becoming prosecutor. Um, and you, you said a lot about working for your clients and working, seems like, around the clock. You must remember to relax. So to help you relax, I have some questions for you. Okay. Is this portion I am of, I am very passionate about what I do. That's that's amazing. I'm really happy to see that because of course I see you in the courtroom and to hear you say that because you know most people think lawyers are liars who just want your money and to hear you say you're just passionate about justice because it matters that warms my heart. <laughs> well, thank you. Just absolutely true. <laughs> All right, so this portion is called Who in the World, Where in the World, and How in the World. So who in the world inspires you to be who you are or inspires you to be the attorney you are? Wow, that's a interesting question because I've been inspired by so many people over the years. Um, you know, honestly, like I said, when it started out, I was inspired by TV. Mm -hmm. And those individuals weren't even real. Mm -hmm. You know, they were characters. But I wanted to be one of those people fighting for justice. And uh, so that was an inspiration, certainly, or at least the, the mindset that it played, the ideals that it placed in my mind were, were an inspiration. But when it comes to any one person who has inspired me the most, and I mean, my parents have done so much for me, both my father and my mother, but the one person in this world who has done the most to make me the individual that I am today is hands down my wife. Mm -hmm. she, um, she's an incredible woman, she's a school teacher. I'm a continual work in product, I think, mm -hmm. or process, I think she's progress, she is, uh, you know, she has her hands full trying to make sure that, that she makes me to be the best person I can be. But she is truly an incredible inspiration in so many ways. She's a fantastic person, a fantastic mentor, a fantastic mother to our children, a fantastic grandmother to our grandchildren. Wow. We've been together now 20, 
Well, we dated for six and a half years before we got married, and we've been married 22 and a half years. So oh, wow. I guess we're coming up on 29 years-ish. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. See, so that means six months before you opened this place, y'all got married. Well, I started practicing law. Uh, yeah, I, we got married six months before I graduated from law school. Gotcha. And then I started, I took the bar a month after that, but I was actually practicing before I graduated. Well, I was a clerk before I graduated, and then I started practicing as soon as graduation happened as a certified legal intern, which in Indiana allows you to actually represent clients in the courtroom as long as you had a, a supervising attorney. And I was lucky enough to have attorneys who were willing to be supervisors. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. All right. So your dearest wife is the person who inspires you. And where in the world, if you can go anywhere in the world, like anywhere, where would y'all go? Right now, Alaska. Oh. Alaska is the only state in the United States I've not yet seen. Oh, wow. My goal was to see all of the United States before I really started to travel the world. And I have been in all of the 48 states, most of them multiple times. I've, in fact, I've ridden my motorcycle in all of the oh, lower 48 states. That's cool. I've been to Hawaii, but I did not ride my motorcycle <laughs> there, obviously. I think that's kind of hard. Um, and uh, Alaska is the only state I have not yet ventured into. So that's next on my list. I did not, I was not successful in attending, or I was not successful in visiting all of the United States before I went to foreign countries because I have been to Canada a few times and I've been to Mexico. Um, but that's it. I haven't gone anywhere else in the world yet because my next trip needs to be to Alaska first. Okay. I would love to go to Alaska and then take pictures, selfies at 12 o'clock and then what? in the nighttime where it looks like it's daytime? Yes, and that's, you know, there's so many things about Alaska, and I've, I've not been there, so I don't know yet, and I've only done a little bit, of, but there, a little bit of research, but I'd like to see the Northern Lights. Yeah. I would like to see the mountains. I'd like to see it in summer and winter. I don't know, you know, it's just so hard. There's so many neat things about Alaska, but. That would be cool. But I have not yet made it there. And how do you, um, this is the third part of um, this segment. How in the world do you honor your wife? Well, that's an interesting question. I just try um, to be the person that she wants me to be. You know, she is so encouraging mm. and so proud of me, and she would be no matter what I did. So I have to take with a grain of salt all of her compliments sometimes. Mm. You know, in this process, this campaigning, it's it's unlike anything I've ever done before. You know, I, I'm not afraid of public speaking. Obviously, you don't get out in front of juries if you have a phobia of public speaking. But a jury trial is a much different situation. When I'm in front of a jury, I honestly feel like that courtroom is mine. Yeah. It's, it is mine. It's there for me and my client. Judges like to think it's their courtroom, but that's not the way I see it. That courtroom is there for me and my client, for the state of Indiana, to prove their, you know, the, it's actually not there for the judge. Mm -hmm. The judge is just the person who, you know, controls the rules of evidence and helps maintain order in the courtroom. But that courtroom is built for me mm -hmm. and my clients. It's kind of like a football stadium, you know, a judge is a referee in the courtroom. In a football stadium, you got a referee, but they didn't build that stadium for the referee. I see. They built it for the football players. Mm -hmm. And so that's my court, and that's, and when I'm in that courtroom, I, I, I walk around the courtroom like I own it because it's mine. It's built for me, and it's there for my client. And if I'm the prosecutor, it's built for the state of Indiana, and it's my courtroom. It's completely different when you, you know, we just had a live debate on TV the other day. How was that for you? It was nerve-wracking. I was so stressed getting ready for that because normally in the courtroom, I'm asking the questions. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets to ask me a question. If they get asked, if they try to ask me a question, I get to say, you don't ask the questions here, I do. So, you know, when you get 
put under the microscope like that, and it's broadcast out on a local TV station that goes to multiple counties. I mean, you know, Tippecanoe County can vote for us, but this TV station broadcasts into multiple jurisdictions, many counties around here, so a lot of people may have been tuning in that can't even vote for me. Mm -hmm. um, what I found interesting about it, I guess, it was curious that you know, we have an open congressional seat right now, and between the two parties, Republican and Democrat, I think there's like 13 or 15 people running for that open seat. Huh. And that's a Congress seat, and they've not done a live debate with those people on TV, mm -hmm. just the sheriffs and the prosecutor race, yeah. so the five of us. Um, but it was a little nerve-wracking. I didn't get to know what the questions were ahead of time. Oh, I can imagine. So, um, you know, but when you... You go up there, you put yourself out there in the public view, and, and you say, look, I'm out here, I want to I want to do a job for you, I'm asking for your support, I'm asking for your vote. Well, one of the things you do is you subject yourself to public scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And and there's always a risk that I could, you know, trip and fall on the stage or spill mm -hmm. a bottle of water on myself or say something really, really unintelligent. Yeah. Anything can happen. And I can tell you this, when I'm up there in that situation, I don't have a good gauge over whether I'm doing well or I'm not. Mm. So when I stepped down off the stage and I talked to my wife and I mm. said, how'd I do? And she says, you did fantastic. And I'm Aww. like, yeah, thanks, I better ask somebody else. Because she always <laughs> says I did, I did fantastic. Because she believes in you. <laughs> she does, she does. That's and I just sweet. try not to let her down. Yeah, so Mr. McCoy, Earl McCoy, running for Tippecanoe County prosecutor, if you could have any character or superhero as, I guess, your idea as the prosecutor. I hope my question is coming out right. Um, what character, that, there we go. What character or superhero um, embodies your idea of the prosecutor? Well, I'm gonna go with Batman, just because somebody once told me I had the voice of Batman. <laughs> My voice is very low and unusual, yes. isn't it? Um, in fact, uh, my main paralegal was watching the live debate at home with her husband, mm -hmm. and or somebody, and, and they said, uh, well, what'd they do to make his voice so low? Is he doing that on purpose? Wow. And she's like, no, he <laughs> always sounds like that. That's just his voice. That's that's true. <laughs> and somebody did tell me that, well, you have the voice of Batman, it's cool, I don't know about that. But what I like about Batman, and I, I don't watch a lot of, I don't read comic books and I don't watch, I mean, I've seen Batman movies, but I, I, I'm not a, oh, I don't know, a real connoisseur of superhero movies, but my recollection of Batman is he's just a man. Mm. He doesn't have any real powers. Mm -hmm. He has gadgets. And he has resources and creativity, and that's how he fights crime. I see. And that's what the prosecutor's office does. We use technology today to fight crime. We use all types of technology, and all we're always coming, trying to come up with new ways to prove what happened. Mm -hmm. We're not superheroes. We don't have any superpowers. I can't look through and tell if you're lying or telling the truth. I don't have the ability to you know, use my fancy eyeballs and scan your fingerprints. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we don't have a superpower, but we have a lot of technology. And that's really the kind of superhero that Batman is. I mean, he had a very cool suit. He has a lot of cool gadgets that help him get the job done, but he's just a man. He's just a, a man fighting for justice. I like that. I like that. And um, last question for you. Um, why should you be elected prosecutor? because I have the passion and the desire to fix what's wrong with Tippecanoe County right now. I am committed to making this community safer again, holding criminals accountable in this community. It's extremely important to me. It really matters to me because I live here. Mm -hmm. I've raised my girls here and now my grandkids are being raised here and they will probably raise their children here. We have no intention of going anywhere. This is the community I've chosen 
I could, you know, when I graduated from law school, I didn't even look anywhere else for a job. Mm -hmm. I only came to Lafayette and looked for a job here, and I had a little trouble. I sent out resumes and nobody responded. So I volunteered for Judge Hyde in Tippecanoe Superior Court too as a clerk, and then met some lawyers and was able to find a job because this is where I want to be. Mm -hmm. But the way things are right now, shots fired every other night, yeah. people being arrested, no charges being filed. The numbers I got from Lafayette Police Department said in 2017 alone, 917. Now, total number of cases where the prosecutor didn't take any action was 2,511 cases. Wow. The other two departments didn't tell me how many were arrested and how many weren't, but LPD keeps an extra, they, they keep track of an extra line item basically that says they were thrown in jail and, and the prosecutor declined to file charges. 917 people. 917 people where our police officers did their job, found reason to incarcerate them, turned it over to the prosecutor's office, and the prosecutor's office said, ah, we're not gonna worry about it. That's not acceptable to me. Mm -hmm. And then when you look and you know you think, well, maybe, just maybe, there's so many cases they can't get the job done. Well, I pulled from the clerk's office the total number of cases filed for the year. It was 200 more than the year before, and if you, I laid it out on a on a line graph, the total number of cases filed in Tippecanoe County has stayed about the same for the last seven years. It really hasn't significantly increased. Mm. There was a drop in 2014 for some reason, and then it came right back up to the same plateau. So it's not that they're filing more cases or they can't keep up, they're just not filing the cases, and that's unacceptable. And um, just, because I'm concerned about that. If you are a prosecutor now, and those numbers, you're, you would be given those same numbers, what would hopefully be the reason why those 917 people weren't charged with anything? I can't, there is in my mind no valid excuse. There may be a valid excuse for one or two cases here and there, a handful, some minor discrepancies that maybe there wasn't good evidence, mm -hmm. but not in those, the sheer volume of those numbers tell you that it just can't be right. Our mm -hmm. police officers aren't arresting that many people without any evidence. Mm -hmm. It's just not happening. Uh, our prosecutor's office just chooses to file cases that are, in my opinion, they only file cases if they're 100% convinced at that time that it's a slam dunk. And, and that's not the right way to do it. I mean, the way, you're, you've been through law school, the normal way a criminal case is supposed to proceed is a police officer makes a determination of whether or not there's probable cause, mm -hmm. not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, probable cause. Mm -hmm. You file the charges, you get them off the street, then you go through the evidence. If we find out later there isn't enough evidence, it's not, you know, then we dismiss the charges. Mm -hmm. But you don't linger around for two and a half years and have this backlog of thousands of cases because what's happening is they're getting stuck on a shelf. Mm -hmm. And so cases like the one I told you about that's in my book of facts where the guy confessed, mm -hmm. confessed, turned over the child porn, they didn't file it for two and a half years. There is no valid excuse for that. It wasn't that there was a lack of evidence because they filed it two and a half years later. Mm -hmm. that, that type of crime, well, all criminal behavior needs to be addressed quickly swiftly, and there need to be consequences. And that's what I'm passionate about, and that's what I'm gonna make change. All right, then. Well, um, those, I think I know you a little bit better now. Um, how can the connectors out there and connectors of Tippecanoe County who may be looking for a family attorney, a criminal attorney, or just wanna Campaign with you. How can connectors connect with you? Email address? VoteMcCoy at gmail.com okay. is an email address that will go to our team. I do have access to it, but a lot of other people kind of filter through that. But they can get connected with the campaign through that email address um, and then reach me directly also because uh, if it's anything that needs my attention, somebody will bring it to my attention very quickly. Uh, we have a very active Facebook page, Earl McCoy for Tippecanoe County Prosecutor on Facebook, I think is the name of it. Uh, we have a website, vote, it's uh, www.voteearlmccoy.com. 
We're also on Instagram and Twitter, but I don't really do Instagram and Twitter, so I can't no? tell you exactly what those are. And we're on YouTube, so okay. you can search for us on YouTube. All right, then. And connectors, you know how to connect with me on my website, www.ampsconnected.com, or email me if you want to be part of the show or just have a question, info.ampsconnected at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram as well, ampsconnected, or Twitter. I don't really tweet much. <laughs> I um, Insta, sometimes. I try, but my phone is so busted right now. But yeah, connectors, you know how to connect with me. And Mr. McCoy, thank you so much for having me, having us in your office. Hey, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and I wish you luck, wish you well with your campaign. Thank you. All right. Connectors, stay connected.